invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 is where we're at today. A little over halfway done with our series in Galatians. I feel like I'm moving too fast. I think we should take at least two more years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> there seems to be an intense generations-long fascination with the originals of the faith, with the, the base or the foundation. In other words, church denomination after Christian movement, after groups of people, they all make these wonderful statements such as, we are like the first church. We're the originals, you know. We have Catholics claiming uh, papal succession since Peter. We have Pentecostals saying, well, we actually read and believe in the power of the Spirit and, and the in the book of Acts. And not just these two groups, but it seems like every church movement, every revival, every uh, reformation and protest likes to make this claim. The reason they're coming out from whatever Christian group they're a part of is for reasons, they claim, of a return or a recovering of, of um, something more Radical, the original word radical meaning from the root. And they're saying, you know, you, the group they're coming out of, have morphed our heritage. You've morphed our faith into something that wasn't like the original. So we're returning to the roots of the faith. And in many cases, perhaps it's been true. Perhaps it's been the case. Uh, I don't see anything in Scripture, period, that leads me to believe that I should venerate Mary or that I should ask saints to pray for me. Or that a human office on this planet would take the place of Jesus after he ascended. So kudos to the reformers who left the the trappings of Catholic tradition when they did. Uh, Kudos to those who then challenged the reformers and Protestants who felt like it was okay to say, Hey, Catholic Church, you got it wrong. Stop persecuting me. And then they turned around and they persecuted the Quakers and the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists and Quakers said to the reformers, We feel like you didn't go too radical. You didn't go back far enough. We believe in a believer's church. We believe only believers should be part of the community of faith. And that church isn't something that secular society should use to control populations. Well, another group that likes to think that the church at large has it wrong, and they're the ones returning to some lost, hidden, or suppressed center and root of faith, are the Judaizers that Paul has been dealing with in Galatians. And they are flat out wrong. (laughs) That is really Paul's point in our text today, in that what they're arguing for, that, that somehow to be a better Christian, one must be more Jewish, because that's what the Bible says, implies, or flat out teaches, is in fact wrong. Paul's point is that our heritage of salvation by faith has been around since the proverbial day one. That is our heritage. So I invite you to stand if you're able. I know Phil forced you to stand for that last song. But if you're able to stand one more time as we read uh, the Lord's Word together, let's do that. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'll handle that in a minute. That's why you have two Bibles, right? Page 1397. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that after starting in the Spirit, are you now finishing in the flesh? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God lavish His Spirit on you and work miracles among you because you practice the law, or because you hear and believe? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are sons of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold the gospel to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so grateful for your word. We trust the Holy Spirit who wrote these words as the same spirit ministering to us in these moments. Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our hearts and minds to receive your word and your voice and not Kevin. We ask that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would fill us fresh with these truths, that we would take deep comfort as well as deep conviction wherever you would place it um, from these words. Uh, Father, would you move us to do your will? Thank you that you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are maybe seated. I've said it before, but this is Paul's most blunt, confrontational letter. He feels, and rightly so, that the gospel or the crux of what we believe as Christians is at stake. And he's very invested personally because he's been there. He's been where the Galatian false teachers are, urging other Christians what they're urging other Christians to do. See, Paul was the most passionate, zealous, devout Jewish man ever. And he had a high regard for the law. But as I said, what Paul and what is at stake is, what is the gospel? That's what Paul was saying. And what does Jesus mean? What is the gospel and what does Jesus mean? And so in order to confront Bad theology, sometimes, maybe if not all the time, we must face it hard on. And some of the best teachers within our own faith tradition, going back to the beginnings, as even well as outside of Christianity, other people like to rip off our good ideas, but some of the best teachers teach with asking questions. This is because it encourages the listener to think things through. It encourages them to use their God-given brain and their ability to reason to hopefully come to a better way of thinking. And Paul couples this way of teaching, asking questions with some volatile language. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ, was clearly portrayed as crucified. So Paul is diagnosing their problems. And we note two things here. He he sees, first of all, that their problematic beliefs are being, are as being bewitched. The Greek word being used here is used only once in the New Testament. I'll give you one guess as to where. 
Here, good job, you're listening. And it does mean as it sounds, an evil power being used to put someone under a spell. So Paul finds this demonic. He finds this way of thinking demonic. If you remember, as he said, as he opens the book, if you go back a page, you can see it for yourself in Galatians 1, 8 through 10. He says, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, even if that person is me, let that person be accursed. I tend to think Paul is being more literal than he is being figurative here back in Galatians 3. I know sometimes we like to joke, it wasn't me, the devil made me do it, or I was under a spell. I can't take full blame here, but I think Paul is using this jarring language because he believes it. And it's that risky. Of course, Satan, of course the enemy wants to do what he can to keep people from simple, life-saving, life-transforming faith in Jesus. The enemy knows we cannot keep the law. And it will lead us towards pride or guilt, just not life and peace. Who has bewitched you? Paul's casting doubt and suspicion on such teachers who would teach such things. That's how serious the situation is. That's the first thing we see here in verse 1. He believes more literally than not that they've been bewitched. But then secondly, Christ crucified is the weightiest antidote to their toxic beliefs. He writes, uh, in verse 1, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed, or the ESV would say publicly portrayed, as crucified. And the point I believe that Paul is saying, I, or the original ministers who came to Galatia, he and Barnabas, did a good thorough job of explaining Christ's crucifixion and how that is the crux of the faith. And Christ is, or he should be, the antidote for faulty, law-loving religiosity, need to be more Jewish to be a better Christian thinking. Because how can one look at Christ with faith that he is the Son of God? How can one see the nails in his hands, the thorns sinking into his skull? How can one feel the very earth shake and darkness fall upon the land and this isn't enough? I need to do more to be saved? This just isn't enough? When God becomes flesh and dies for the creation that rebelled against Him, when the infinite becomes finite, when all the power voluntarily becomes powerless, and when the all-knowing limits His knowledge, and when the sovereign becomes subjected, and when purity and holiness becomes sin and lawlessness for our sake, it is a spit in His face to deny Him His service. It is an offense to his sacrifice to demand more when the sovereign has declared it is finished. It is enough. So Paul is saying, here is God in the flesh dying for your sins. Who has bewitched you for you to think, well, if you want to be saved, pull your bootstraps up. This is going to be hard. Paul continues unpacking from this very logic we we see in verses 2 and 3. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish after starting in the spirit? Are you now finishing in the flesh? In places like, I believe I had this in your outlines, like 2 Corinthians 1.22 or Ephesians 1.13 and 14, Paul calls the Holy Spirit our pledge or our down payment, where it seems in this kind of faulty Galatian law-loving thinking, it's almost like they call Christ's death itself as a down payment. We have to do more. Paul says the Holy Spirit is our down payment, which should assure us we're saved. God's living in us. And Paul is asking, how did you get that Holy Spirit? How were you able to have God move in and set up shop in you? Was it works of the law? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, I remember at a, at a young age, and I'm not as super holy as some of you, I didn't write down the date, but I do remember asking Jesus into my heart and praying, because that's how we did it in that era. I'm not going to talk about sincerity or do formulate prayers save you. That's just what I did. And as I grew, I began to note strongly some things are right. Some things are good. Some things are pure. Some things uh, would glorify God. Now, I wouldn't have worded it like this as a boy or preteen or teenager, but some things do glorify God. But then I also noted there are other things I shouldn't do. I don't know why I shouldn't do them. Sure, maybe my parents would disapprove, but many of my peers didn't care. In fact, they engaged in things that I just knew inside me, you know, that's not right. That's not holy. That's not warm. That's not pure. And then at some day when I was around age 16 or 17, I began to sense something. I began to feel this general draw to this wacky idea. Maybe I should be a pastor. And it was through prayer and Bible reading and godly counsel and it all began to be confirmed for me. And here's the thing. This presence, this inner guidance, this inner light, this spiritual direction, what I didn't do at a young age was whip out a Bible, look at the Old Testament and say, Dad and Mom, we need to do church on Saturdays. You're not doing it right. Nor did I say, you know, when you grounded my brother for doing thus and such, actually we should go get some rocks and stone him. That... That ought to put him in order. No, I, I just said a simple prayer. I believed what I said. That's how the Holy Spirit came to me. And so Paul's argument is the Holy Spirit was there at the beginning for you by faith. Do you not need him now? See, it goes back to this pride thing. Beyond spitting at what Christ accomplished at the cross, are we also so smart, advanced, and prideful to say... Okay, Holy Spirit, be righteous. I can take it from here, God. Leave me alone. Because that's the logical end. That's the logical implication of this sort of thinking. Verse 4, Paul asks, Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Now, it seems study notes and commentators are purposely vague on this point because the entire book of Galatians seems purposely vague. Besides this verse... There, the only reference to suffering is in chapter 6, verse 12. But we can only speculate as to what Paul is talking about, and it's not hard to speculate. In Acts chapter 14, Paul's original travels through the region of Galatia. Now, if you forgot, it's, this is an entire region. It's not just one city. And while going through Galatia, Paul and Barnabas were getting stoned. They were getting mistaken for pagan gods and then stoned again. Um, 
Some wondered if Paul actually died from one of the stonings and Christ did another resurrection in him. We don't know. But when these guys make disciples, it's not too hard to imagine if the contempt of these sorts of people passes on to the disciples they make. But even in our day and age, I mean, I wonder this often. Do other people realize it? Do other people sense it? Can other people sympathize? Or is it just me where it feels like there's this subtle underlying persecution of Christians or this contempt of Christians, this general malignancy towards Christian virtues or sensibilities that seems present? I don't know if other people sense it as I do. But Paul is asking, or what Paul is getting to, is there was a day when you received Christ and your theology wasn't scrambled, and because of Christ you suffered. Was all that for nothing? You know, in Rome, all the religions of the land, the day they conquered such lands, they were allowed. But new religions were not allowed. That was the Roman law. And so that's how Jews instigated Romans and how Romans went about seeing this new sect of Christianity coming from Judaism. It's actually a, it's a whole new religion that the Jews are distancing themselves from. That's why they would outlaw and persecute such a faith. Uh, that's a faith that said, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. So Paul is asking this question, was all this in vain? If you're willing to minimize Christ in such a way to say it's not what He does, but what I do that really saves me? Furthermore, verse 5 Does God lavish His Spirit on you and work miracles among you because you practice the law or because you hear and believe? Maybe you can see it in the book of Acts that where the disciples went, signs and wonders would verify and testify and went with them to affirm uh, to the people that they came into contact with. In other words, this is real. God did visit us. These guys are preaching the truth. And now there is this debate in our day and age. Does God still do signs and wonders? Does He still miraculously heal? Does He still show His power in exciting ways as He did with Paul, whom people touched His work clothes and they were healed? Or simply if Peter's shadow fell over them and they got healed? Or of these people who raised the dead? Uh, there are two general beliefs surrounding this question. Does God still do miracles? Uh, one view is called continuationism. Now, if you think about what I just said, as it sounds, these gifts and miracles can continue. These things still happen. God still heals people. And I would say this is the camp that I fall in with some skepticism. <laughs> Primarily, I believe God can can and does do whatever He wants to do whenever He wants to do. He doesn't need my confirmation. That's okay, God. <laughs> Approved. I do believe that some people might try to fake it. Why didn't all the faith healers keep people from filling up hospitals during COVID? (laughs) Another group of people are called cessationism from the word cease. They believe that God has ceased these gifts and miracles, and these things were primarily, these miracles were primarily to expand that first church across the world. That the apostles and the first church needed these gifts as witnesses, and then they usually put a cap on when the first church died out, saying that it was by witness and faith in the Word of God after that point. They'll point to phrases like what Jesus says, an adulterous generation seeks signs and wonders. And the sign of all signs was Christ on the cross. So in our day and age, we shouldn't point people 
or we should point people to the cross and not to seek signs and wonders for verification. I agree with all that except with one big exception. That's what I already said. God can and does do whatever he wants to do. (laughs) He heals cancers. He sets addicts free. He shows up in visions and dreams. So I'm not going to put a cap where I feel like the Bible doesn't put a cap. I'm, but I'm also not seeking signs and wonders. I'm not denying that them either. I just have a healthy dose of skepticism. Paul is asking the Galatians, apparently where signs and wonders did follow in their wake of ministry, he's asking, how did this happen? Did you get this from the law? You know, something tells me that every time a, a sign or a wonder happens in Jewish circles, holy cow, council needs to be formed. Pharisees and teachers need to debate about it. It's held under suspicion. It's explained in many different ways. Well, no, the Holy Spirit entered into people upon simple faith that it is Christ who saves me. And he did his work through willing vessels, not through religious law-keeping, box-checking adherence. He works in those who believe in him and walk by faith. Now, after these series of questions that Paul puts towards the Galatians, he's going to head into biblical foundation. Now, as I opened, lots of people think they're doing God a favor when they come out with their movements. They're returning to the fundamentals. And so Paul's going to just blow that theory out of the water as far as these guys are concerned. You know, many note that a man named John Wesley came up with this idea of a quadrilateral when considering things in the faith. Uh, John Wesley would examine things from four angles. Now, despite the word picture, I want to say that Wesley would not say that these are all equally footed approaches to questions in faith and theology. In other words, there's some hierarchy in these four things we use when we approach questions. But we do look with Scripture. That's probably a highest authority. We do look with tradition. What do Christians behind us say about this thing? We do look with reason. And we do look with experience. What does scripture say on the matter? What has Christian tradition said historically? What does reason tell us? And what does personal experience tell us? Well, I'm going to say that Paul has just looked with reason and experience on their question in those first five verses. And now he's going to be moving to scripture and tradition in the faith. And so he says in verse six, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him credited to him as righteousness. Now, a few things here. Paul is going back farther than his ideological opponents. See, they go back to the law. They go back to Moses. They go back to the covenant community as far as the Israelites out of Egypt. But Paul, in essence, is saying, let us not forget what Moses told us about the origins of the Israelite community. Let us not forget what God did when he started with the particular people he'd call his own. Not to mention Adam, Seth, Noah, and such. But Abraham wasn't what many Jewish people would call Jewish. He wasn't familiar with the law insofar as Moses received it on Sinai. Does that make sense? And the moment that Paul is quoting, written about Abraham, is Genesis 15, verse 6 was when Abraham believed that God would provide him with descendants numerous as the stars. And if we follow the chapters of Genesis chronologically, if we say that they are chronologically 
fairly accurate, which I generally do, then this was before Sarai and Hagar, and it was before the covenant of circumcision. So again, he wasn't really Jewish insofar as Jewish people understand the racial identity of Jewishness. If we want to say it this way, before God covenanted with Abraham in the immediate Jewish race by circumcision, he covenanted with Abraham as a representative of mankind, period, by the simple means of his faith. Does that make sense? All Abraham did was believe God, and that was credited to him as righteousness, faith, belief, no law yet, no circumcision yet, really no Jewish race yet. So it only makes sense that Paul then would argue here in Galatians 3.7, understand then that those who have faith are sons of Abraham. I want you to hear this in all of its implications and meaning, because I do believe that Paul means this in the fullest sense. Paul is saying that the original message of the Bible, the original revelation to mankind from God is this. The brokenness that sin caused to the world is repaired by faith in God. Let me give you this illustration. I was a mean dad at church this morning. I was the first ones here with my boys. And if you heard me, you probably could have. Why do my sons come back to me and still love me? after I've disciplined them for some wrongdoing that they've done. They, they've disobeyed me. They get a spanking, a timeout, a lecture, all of the above that never works, but sometimes. My oldest, especially Calvin, will in the same conversation and in the same breath, okay, but dad, and then ask me a question, usually unrelated to the topic at hand, or continue on in conversation that shows that he still loves me. And he does that and my sons are able to do that, not out of some psychological compartmentalization, like I'm unable to deal with the tough stuff. No, I feel like it's because they have a childlike love and trust in me. And they know that I do still love them, because I do. It is not my intention, whenever I discipline, to put up a wall and say, this is going to cost some repair. If you want to continue in my good graces, there's some loops you need to jump through. No, I discipline to mold them into being good human beings, by the grace of God, but my love for them never departs. And they just trust that I love them. And that trust is well-founded. I do love them. Likewise, humanity has rebelled against their father. They've severed the relationship by sin. How will we ever rectify that issue? How will we repair our lifeline? We were made to be in communion with him, but we've botched up that communion. What must we do for it to be repaired? Like Abraham... We should have faith in Him. We should believe in Him. Trust Him. Even though I've done you wrong, you have my best intentions in mind, and you will close the gap that I made, right? Does that illustration make sense? So then, those who have faith are sons of Abraham. I believe there's a silent contrast here. Unlike what the Galatian false teachers are saying, that to be part of the covenant community and to be a true son of Abraham, to be a believer in the family of God, one must be circumcised, one must keep the law. And Paul is saying, no, 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 we preach salvation by faith in God. The same God, Abraham trusted him, and the same God who credited to Abraham's righteousness 
by that faith, by that trust. Because that's what salvation is. Being declared right before God so that we are welcomed back into His communion. And all Abraham had to do was trust in God and believe in Him. You know, I've never adopted before, obviously, but I imagine this for many parents, the son or the daughter is there's the moment that they decide to adopt that son or daughter, the, the moment that they saw them, they want them, right? The signing papers, but in their heart and mind, even whenever they don't have them yet, they're saying, that's the child, they're mine. The child could have done little to nothing, and in fact, the decision to say, the child, that child is mine, or I love them, wouldn't come from a heart of, wow, they impressed me. Rather, a heart of just knowing, just receiving. But perhaps for the son or daughter, especially if they're at an age of awareness when they were adopted, I imagine a moment that solidified, that's my dad or that's my mom, comes from when they began to respond like my boys already respond to me. I know there is no doubt or question in my son's mind, will dad ever stop loving me? They know I won't. So perhaps for adopted children, when the question is so far removed from their minds, when they come to a place that they know, no matter what, that's my dad, that's my mom, they'll never leave me, and I have no reason to ever question them. Perhaps that is when they know what the parents knew all along, that they truly are a son or a daughter. So it is with Abraham and God, and so it is with Abraham's sons and daughters. When we believe God to that degree, we know He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know that His desires for us are good and pure. And when we obey out of trust and love to know that everything He calls me to do is good for me to do, everything He tells me not to do is also for my good. Does that make sense? Paul continues to argue from the place of scriptures of Abraham's story, and he says in verses 8 and 9, he says, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold the gospel to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. I again want you to hear this in the fullest sense of what Paul is saying. I believe it's a a crucial truth in separating what our faith or what Christianity is from the scrambled mess of Judaizing faith. What Paul just said here is that it's always been a worldwide thing, right? It's not just a Jewish thing, it's a worldwide thing. I wonder if you heard that in what Paul said. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles... By faith, Gentiles, non-Jews, the rest of the world. Well, how so, Paul? When did he say that? The very first words on God's call to Abraham. There's the Tower of Babel narrative. There's a brief genealogical Hebrew phone book. And then we hear out of the gate in Genesis 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your kindred, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So first we see... Separate yourself and be holy. That's a common theme, common thread throughout the scriptures. Noah had to come out of an evil world. Moses and the Israelites had to come out of Egypt. But the Lord calls Abram to leave his Gentile race, to leave his pagan race. And then he says, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. 
And I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So now we have identity. He will be his own nation. Though he comes from a pagan race, he will be their own tribe, their own people. So, did you know that I and my family are American, but we weren't always? Uh, in fact, a couple of hundred years ago, there was no such thing as an American. But I believe if you go back far enough, I have some British and German ancestry. But it's easier and linguistically and scientifically accurate to say I'm American. I'm American, my parents are American, my grandparents and their parents and so forth. Abraham is getting the promise that within a few generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name is also Israel, will be their own people, their own identity, their Israelites. This is a promise. So separation, identity, but then hear the purpose. Hear the purpose, and this is the crucial element that fleshes out Paul's argument. And all the families of the earth... That's Gentile, that's worldwide, that's Jews and everyone else. Everyone will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3. This is our heritage, Paul says. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It makes sense. It's biblical. If you want to get really radical, Galatian, Judaizing, law-loving, law-enforcing false teacher, it says right in your law. That it was always a faith thing to be blessed by God, to be declared righteous by God. All one must do is believe in God. That's what Abraham did. This is our heritage. This is what God wanted. And he said it before the law. He said it before Moses. To the man, he said, you're righteous. He also said, through you, the world will be blessed. And we'll see Paul talk more about who the sons of Abraham are near the end of chapter 3. But for now, I want you to know, though I might be arguing somewhat from a polemical or opposing contrarian tone, because there is this fascination with Jewish law that still persists today, I come at it from a tone that I'm not preaching anything new. (laughs) I'm not responding to a teaching that claims moral high ground with something that's off in, in, in regular Christianity. No, rather... The gospel that Paul teaches and preaches has the moral high ground and it has the biblical firm foundation. The gospel has the author's stamp of approval. The gospel has been around since Abraham. I would argue with been around since Genesis 3.15. Faith in Christ to be saved. Amen? Amen? Do you trust Him? Do you trust that He is faithful, that He saves and that by your faith in Him, you are saved. That's the only way of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you inspired people so much smarter than Kevin is to show us from the Scriptures what's always been. There is this paradox, it seems. We talk about old and new covenant. We talk about old wineskins and new wineskins. We talk about patching up an old shirt or father. But at the same time, the paradox is is that this has always been the case. You've always looked for faith in you. You've always looked to save those who would just simply trust in you before the law, during the law, after the law. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. A lot of those people are from a old covenant community and 
the author of Hebrews used them as examples of faith because of their trust in you, not because of their trust in the law or their trust in their own righteousness, because of their trust in you. And so we pray that as we receive this today, hopefully it's old news for all of us, but I pray that you would do a work of grace in our hearts even still to have complete assurance and to know that you will always love us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us if we just trust in you. Help us to trust in you for salvation, but also help us to trust in you for sanctification, for day-to-day faith. Father, as we talked about the hall of faith, these aren't people who were great examples of faith because they trusted in you to be saved, but rather because of the actions you've called them to do and they were faithful to do them because they trusted the person who's calling them. So help us to answer your calling with complete trust and to do what you'd call us to do. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.